Welcome to Lillipod episode 33, Learning to Breathe Again with Lark Galley. Jeff and Kathy Teichert bringing you another episode of Lillipod, which is a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. Uh, welcome, friends, uh, to another edition of Love in Later Years uh, Lillipod podcast. And uh, normally uh, I do these by, um, you know, in tandem with my wife, Kathy. This is Jeff Teichert. She is unavailable today. And so it's just going to be me, but I'm interviewing a special guest, uh, Lark Dean Galley. And I'd like to let her introduce herself in, in terms of her credentials and other things she might want to share. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks, Jeff. And I will just say that uh, I followed Jeff on Facebook for it's probably been at least 10 years now. Uh, through We have a mutual friend and I really liked what you had to say. And I thought you were, were very wise on many of your comments. And then we met at a networking group. And uh, I feel like I've known you just I've kind of seen your journey going from divorce to finding love and and being married. Uh, for me, I'm in my mid-50s. I've had a lot of grief in my life, a lot of joy, but a lot of grief. And uh, I would say that I was in corporate America for a long time, left, went off into my own to do my own consulting, and then now I run a few companies uh, that I have. So that's the kind of the professional side. I have a, an undergrad and a, and a master's degree. And I, and I will just say this, um, being a woman, and being LDS, raised LDS, it not always accepted by male Mormon members. I will say that <laughs> just to throw it out there. You know, I think the younger men are doing better with accepting and allowing women to kind of step into the roles that they would like to choose. But my age group and older, not, not always the case. I actually was working for the state of Utah the beginning of my career and was told to my face by my boss uh, when when I had just graduated with my master's degree, that the reason I was not chosen is that I was a woman and in three years I would be leaving to go have my kids. And so this is the kind of the culture that I, I grew up in with regards to my career. So, so just to throw that out there. Yeah. Um, um, I was married uh, after my mission. I married a convert here in Utah. We met at a singles ward and uh, we moved to the San Francisco area. We were there for several years. We had been married for probably six and a half years, going through some infertility, really wanting to get pregnant and my, my late twenties, 30, not getting pregnant. And, and once again, that was another frustrating thing is of course, everybody that's LDS wants to know when you're getting pregnant. If you're married, you know, you have to follow a timeline. And, and that was difficult because I couldn't control it. And every time someone would bring it up, of course, that made me feel worse about the whole situation, right? So um, I've learned that I just don't ask people about their business, right? <laughs> you know, about uh, are they having kids or are they having more kids or, you know, are they pregnant and they are not pregnant? <laughs> Those types of things. It's just sensitive unless you know them better, you know, in their situation. Just best not to judge because you don't know. Right. Um, and then finally, finally getting pregnant, telling my husband uh, that I was so excited that we were pregnant and out of the blue, he tells me that not only does he not want to be a father, but he also does not want to be married to me anymore. Like I said, completely out of the blue. Um, shocking because I thought we were active members of the church. We'd go to the temple every month. We went to church. Uh, every week, he was a flight attendant for the airlines, and so he would travel out of country quite a bit. But when he was there, you know, we'd have couples prayer, we had 
daily scripture study when we were together, all of the checking off the right boxes. And it wasn't until he left and it was about uh, almost a year and a half after he left that I found out that there was another woman, mm. another, another child, you know, oh, wow. <laughs> that, and, but he basically just left, abandoned me. And then I proceeded to have my, my daughter and, and moved to Utah. And in retrospect, I look at that and I was so depressed because I thought, Hey, I've tried to do all the right things. You know, I thought eternal marriage was forever. And how is this possible that it's not working out the way I thought it should be? And, and feeling that I was in some ways being punished for another person's choices and really feeling down. And I would say that I was probably suicidal. The thing that got me through that and, you know, just very depressed is that I had this baby and I understand now that that baby was meant for me to help me make it through a very difficult time, which she did. And, and I am so grateful for, for her. And then I decided to move back to Utah so I could get some family support in, in raising this daughter. And pretty much from that time, from the time she was born, my husband left the country I haven't seen him since, you know, just out of the picture. In retrospect, that was probably the best for us because then I could move forward with my life and, and raise her the way I felt she should be raised. Right. I mean, if you have a, a former partner that is not really engaged um, or, or is maybe fighting the way you want to raise this child, it's you know, you might give up some child support, but it's easier to to uh, move on with your life if you if you're not tethered like that. Right, and I will say that you know that being the fact that he was a citizen of another country, one of my greatest fears in the beginning when she was first born was that he would come and take her out of country. So I, in the early days of that, I was in quite a bit of fear and and uncertainty, and so I have to say. You know, the fact that he did leave, uh, did not come back, that was for the best. So. Now, I'd like to go back to something you said a minute ago, uh, because I, I hear this all the time. Um, I felt like I did everything I was supposed to. You know, I, I um, went on a mission or married a returned missionary in the temple and paid my tithing and was active in the church. and and. So I would like you to address your feeling about all of that now uh, with several years of perspective. So when I was going through what I call three years of infertility, uh, I thought that this was, you know, my Gethsemane, Gethsemane. This is where I was going to die on this cross. And this was the worst thing that would ever happen to me. And I look back now and I laugh because I'm like, oh, sweetie, that was just, you know, the, the start of it all. During that three years of the infertility, when I was actively pursuing, trying to get pregnant um, in vitro, you know, all of the shots, the hormones, just it, it was very painful. I became very close to God and I relied on him in ways that I needed to grow so that when my husband did leave me, I had established that very close dependence, dependency on my father in heaven and going through what I call my two years of hell. When my husband said, Hey, I don't want to be uh, married anymore. I don't care about this baby. And he left and, and I was on my own for a while. The, that was my two years of hell where literally I felt very low at completely stripped of pride of, of everything. Um, I think it was president McKay that said, if you, you know, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. And I really felt that. I felt mm. that anything I had with my career that I had achieved there or my education, that it really didn't matter when my marriage was falling apart. And so I felt very alone and very much like a failure. Um, during that time, though, once again, because of that relationship that I had established with my Heavenly Father going through the infertility it helped me to grow even closer to him. And I had personal revelation that told me about this daughter that was coming to me, that told me about my husband at the time, that, that I was kind of there 
to give him a chance to choose to stay in the gospel. And that if there had been any person that could help him stay active in the church, it would have been me. But I didn't have control over his agency and he had made other choices. And there was nothing I can do about that. Um, I remember my bishop saying, after I had gone through this saying, you know, you don't seem bitter to God about your husband doing this to you. And I, I laughed and I said, well, it's not God's fault. God didn't make these choices, he did. And so I, I felt very low, but I also had unwavering faith that God wanted me to be married and he wanted my daughter to have a father. And I look back then to, you know, this was 26, six, 25, 26 years ago. I look back then and I think, how very low and depressed I was. And I have to laugh because if I had just taken that snapshot in time and said, well, you know, it's over, life is over. I would have missed out on so much. Yeah. And what would you say to someone today that is going through that, that doubt about, well, I thought I did everything right. And you know, yet here I am in this situation where no other success can compensate for what's, what's happened here. You know, how would you talk to someone who's, who's feeling all those things? And, and I can tell you, I used to do this. I was the, the resident divorce specialist in my neighborhood where I used to just live because we lived there for 23 years. And I saw a lot of the young teenage girls grow up get married, and then within five years, you know, they're divorced, they're in their mid to late 20s, and they're crushed. And they're thinking, right. I'm a failure. And they may or may not have had children by that time. And having, I was one of the few women in the neighborhood who had been divorced. And I just felt um, really attached to these young women because I could relate to them. And I'd take them out for lunch and we would have the hard conversation. And I would say, I know you're hurting. I know you feel that your life is over, that you've messed up or you made poor choices about this person or that this person actually has, has done things to you that has totally squashed your personality and your spirit. Um, there was one of the husbands who was into pornography and he had completely debased his wife. Um, another one had just totally put her down, kind of an emotional abuse. So there were some terrible things that happened. And I just have a talk with them and let them know that this is just temporary. This mm. is just a moment in time. And you are a daughter of God. You are totally worth um, staying around, that there is a future in front of you. And I, uh, the three young women that I did this for over time, I've actually seen all three of them remarry, find lovely partners and be able to find joy and happiness and move forward. But in the moment, it didn't feel like that for them. And that's why I feel like I was there to kind of strengthen them and say, I'm here to help you um, find, find someone who has been there and maybe walk that path. Because when you're in the moment, you feel like life is over. And it's just, I promise you, it's just a moment. I mean, I, I felt that way. And I felt like, you know, I don't know how to best describe it, except that something had gone so far wrong in my life that, um, you know, the cosmos was out of balance, things that, you know, this was not the way it was meant to be and, and so on. And I think those kinds of thoughts prolonged the the grieving process for me, you know, I, I was in pretty deep grief for about four years. And uh, I look back on that now and think, well, knowing what I know today, I would have gotten past it more quickly. Um, but I, I, I like what you're saying that I know we have this picture of what Latter-day Saint idealism is and what, what the ideal life is, but life's messy. And it's very messy. I, I'm not encouraging divorce. I hate it. I know that in some cases it's necessary and that in many other cases, uh, you can choose in all you want. If the other person chooses out, you're done. Exactly. And, and so I, I, you know, I think it's important for people to, to take a good look at what 
what you just said that look life can become beautiful again um, you know i think about job the lord gave him twice as much as he had before <clears throat> and i feel that way now you know i mean i uh, my career is in a better place than it's ever been my my you know i have a lovely marriage to someone who actually adores me and you know uh, i'm sure you can say similar things um, about your journey right you know, and I look back at that and it was just a small step, snapshot. And like you say, I wish I had been able to move for, through it faster. And yet we're all learning, right? That right. There's, a, there's a grief that goes with it. The grief of a loss of a life you thought, how your life was going to look, a, a loss of, you know, this temple marriage and the way, quote, things are supposed to be. And I will tell you that, you know, if, if you're feeling that things are supposed to be a certain way, I can promise you, they're not going to look anything like what you think life is supposed to look, especially now. Maybe back in our grandparents' day, not now. There are too many outside forces that can come in and come to play and come to bear on um, the people in our lives. You know, it's, I, I want to be careful not in saying what I'm about to say to be too judgmental of any other person, because we've all walked our own path. Uh, but I have often found that, you know, there are people who things just seem to sort of have worked out for them. And they have that, what at least looks like on the outside, that ideal life. And, you know, the the husband and wife have five kids and she doesn't work outside the home and he does and he makes still makes a lot of money and he served as bishop and you know you 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 know what the the picture looks like but oftentimes i've seen i mean the worst advice i got when i was going through my own grief and the loss of my marriage was really from those people um it, very often they were skeptical about you know, how, how did this happen if you didn't do something wrong? And in a way, it's funny because Job's friends told him that. And uh, people came to Jesus Christ himself asking uh, about, you know, the, the people that um, Pilate had mingled their blood with sacrifices to pagan gods. And he talked about that and the, the Tower of Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. And he said, were they particularly less righteous than others in Jerusalem? And he said, nay. Uh, you know, he said, basically, you all need to repent or at some point a tower is going to fall on you. Right. But I, I mean, I think it's still tempting for many people to think, I know something that those poor divorced people don't know. And that's why things have worked out for me. And many times I think, well, you know, you got lucky, <laughs> you know, I, and I have no bitterness about that. I mean, my path is my path. Um, Agreed. And, and I look at people like that who it does look perfect from the outside, but I am certain that inside there are some things that are not so perfect that, that maybe they don't even know about, right? Right. Uh, maybe the wife resents the husband making all the decisions in the marriage and right. she's not talking up about it, you know? So, so there are some things that, that definitely are going on behind the scenes that, that we might not see, but you're right. Sometimes as members, we can feel so self-righteous right. about certain things. And through my life, because of other things that have happened, I, I have caught myself over and over going, there but for the grace of god go i and that's all i can say about what i see in other people because i have been that was just one or two many trials that have happened since then and i've got my own stuff that i'm working with and so when i see other people working through other things i think i'm so glad that i don't have to carry that burden too because that would be a little bit too much yeah i you know as you were saying that it it kind of struck me there was a time in my life when my f first wife and, and me had the kind of marriage that looked ideal on the outside i mean i was the young men's president we were active in the church we both held callings she was a bishop's daughter um i was a returned missionary i mean 
and people would look at us and and think yeah i wish i had what they have and really they didn't know that on the inside my wife didn't love me for years um and you know felt miserable and wanted to be out of the marriage and uh so i think you're right you know we just don't know what's what's going on inside somebody else's house um exactly exactly uh, here's something that I wanted to share to your listeners, because I think that uh, they might find this very interesting. I, I mentioned before that my, my husband left, I went through a grieving process. And then I said, I know that my Heavenly Father wants me to have a husband and have a father for this child. I, I just, I knew it in my core. And so I uh, manifested my husband and, and here's how he did it. So for all your listeners, you want to hear this. Yeah, this uh, is great. Yeah, I absolutely believed. I knew for a fact that that's what it was. Um, I created this picture in my mind of uh, a family picture of me, my future husband, and all he had was one of those smiley faces, if you know the yellow smiley faces, because I didn't know what he looked like. And then my daughter. So the three of us in this picture, and I would, I would see that in my mind. The other thing is I created a list of 20 things that uh, my, my new husband would have. And uh, obviously being very um, dedicated to the Lord was important to me because my, my other husband, uh, unbeknownst to me, <laughs> was not dedicated to the Lord, right? And I, I created this list. I went through the process of, of getting divorced. And then um, once I was officially divorced, I said, okay, Heavenly Father, what do I need to do? And I didn't feel right about going to a singles ward because of my daughter. I wanted to spend as much time with her as I could. So I didn't feel that that was the right answer. And I was looking for the answer. And when you ask the question, you better be prepared to follow through with whatever you're told. And uh, this was 20, 24 and a half years ago. Uh, God told me to put an ad in the Salt Lake Classifieds. Oh, wow. And this was before the, you know, internet. And now nice. internet online dating is actually cool. Classifieds 25 years ago, not cool. <laughs> and <laughs> You know, I kind of felt like it's the last resort. And I, I said, are you kidding me? You have got to be kidding me of all the things in the world, you know, that I don't know of anything worse than having to put an ad in the classifieds. But I said, you know what? I asked God what to do. He told me, and clearly I will follow through. I put an ad in the paper, uh, very demoralizing, I will say, but I did it. <laughs> and um, this young, this, this man, early thirties, just like I was early thirties, he responded and within four months we were married wow and we were married in the temple okay he was a convert from louisiana he had moved to utah he didn't have really any friends to set him up on a date he couldn't date a client he couldn't date co-workers he wasn't going to go to the bar to find somebody so where does he go and the only place he knows to go is to the classifieds so if i hadn't followed that prompting we would never have met. And um, so that's one of the things, I mean, I had to move from San Francisco to Salt Lake. He had to move from New Orleans to Salt Lake to, to be here. And then here, here is another tender mercy where I feel that, that God was kind of leading me. Since I was 11 years old, I've had this reoccurring dream, like a strange dream where I was searching for my husband. And it was like, you have to find him. You have to find him. You're searching. And what, every few months I'd have this dream. And I just thought that's the strangest dream. So when I got married the first time, I thought, finally, the, this dream is going to stop. And it didn't stop. Wow. It would happen every once in a while. And I'm like, this is such a strange dream. From the time I married my second husband, that dream stopped. Wow. And I'm like, okay, this is really strange and off the wall, but I thought it was a second sign that Heavenly Father was telling me, this is who you're supposed to be with. Yeah, that's, that's very powerful. I, I would like to ask you, um, there are a lot of people, I mean, you were a single parent for a while before uh, mm -hmm. your husband came along. Um, and, and I'm, there's a lot of our people who think, well, I'm a single parent. This is my season of life to be a parent. And I'm going to put everything into that and not worry about dating and remarriage until my kids are grown and gone. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I mean, I honor that choice. If anybody makes that choice, I don't want to want to um, give any misimpressions. But what is your reaction to that thought, that idea? So I know Dr. Laura is really big on that. <laughs> right. I will say that before I was even that baby was even born, I just knew that that there was a husband and a father for this child because I believe that that both parents play such an integral role. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was 16, and I saw you know ups and downs of of that whole situation. And so I would say that um, I felt so strongly about that. I knew there was someone there. I knew that my daughter was to have a father. I actually um, met him right before she turned one, and then we were married when she was 14 months old. With the I gave I right up front, I told him, you know, we're a package deal. Uh, you will adopt her within a, you know, a year later after we're married. So he knew what he was getting into and he loved her. I could tell he loved her from just the way he would look at her and care for her. And that was important to me because she was so young, you know, there was, right. she, he's the only father she has known. Now it might've been totally different if he had, she had been in her teenage years and we had been, you know, I'd been married a longer time to her father that might've made a difference. I, you know, it could have been totally different. Like when she's in her teenage years, let's focus on those last teenage years and then look at me. But for her being so young, that's what I felt. And, and once again, this is a personal decision. It's not, sure. you know, it, it's what, what are you being led by the spirit? What is the spirit telling you to do? And stop questioning and telling other people what to do for Pete's sake, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just stop it. Do, do what you're told to do by, by the spirit, not by your parents, not by your best friend. You know, I I've said the same thing about when to start dating. And I've told men this particularly, but women too, that there's all sorts of armchair psychologists who will tell you the formula, you know, well, it's got to be a year or it's got to be a month for every year you were married or, you know, and the thing is, I mean, that in some ways that divorce date is kind of artificial. I mean, it's, it's, some people are very far along in their grieving process by the time that di divorce is finalized. I mean, I, I, my divorce went on for three years, you know, and, uh, I think for a lot of people, if, if they've been through that kind of process, they're, they're really ready to move on and start dating again. And they've had a chance to evaluate things and whatever. And then there's other people who, you know, who may have been in a situation where their spouse came home one day and said, I've met someone else and I want out and blindsides them and, you know, whatever. And, and that person is just beginning the grieving process when their divorce is finalized. Yeah. And I can totally relate to that because being, you know, just, I would say six weeks pregnant when I told my first husband, Hey, I'm pregnant and being told, I don't want to be married. I don't want to be a father. That was completely blindsided. And it took me a few months to like, what are you talking about? I don't even understand because he wasn't honest with me. He didn't tell me he was with someone else. He didn't tell me that she was also pregnant. And yet, you know, he didn't tell me that he didn't want to stay an active member. He just, as we were getting counseling from the bishop, he was adamant. I have done nothing wrong. And so, you know, and as my counselor said, it takes two people to stay in a marriage. I remember one armchair psychologist telling me that, you know, Lark, you could just stay married. And I'm like, not a the other person doesn't want to stay married. I don't know how I'm supposed to stay married. So you you just can't judge. You don't always know what's going on with their lives. They might, may or may not be honest with you about what's happening. And um, sin can come in and start taking someone's life over and, and they get a warped perception of what's right and what's wrong. And, and it can take them down that path. Yeah, and you could be in a, a soul-destroying kind of marriage where there isn't technically sin going on. I mean, we have all sinned and we all do sin, but, but, you know, there may be a marriage where there's not necessarily adultery or something, but the, you know, one of the spouses um, says, well, I'm, I'm moving to the spare room uh, and maybe they're willing to stay married for appearances or, you know, whatever, but there's really no marriage there. 
they're divorced under the same roof, more or less. And, you know, somebody saying you could just stay married, I think it depends a little bit on what that marriage would look like. And maybe the answers are different for different people as to how much pain you're willing to tolerate. But I knew, you know, if I lived the way that we were living toward the end for another five years, there would be nothing left of me. Right. And, you know, yeah, I could have done it. You know, she would have probably agreed to that sort of arrangement, but, um, you know, that's not a marriage as far as I'm concerned. I'm like, I can keep working no matter what the problem is, if it's not a sham. But if it's a sham, I, I'm not interested. Right. And that's and my answer. But both people. Yeah, it takes both people. Marriage is hard. And, and I will just say that I'm a pretty fiery personality. And I, I know this. <laughs> I know. And I would say that when people had asked me to describe my husband, I would say he's me on steroids. And every time they'd go, oh, so I, you know, I would just want to throw it out there that um, we've now just celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary. And, and it's actually been a miracle that, that we stayed together 24 years because of all this fire that's going on. So just because, you know, God brought us together. And I think those two things I told you about that recurring dream and be moving and being told to look in the, to write it in the classifieds helped remind me whenever all my fire is coming up, you know, that things aren't working out and I want it this way. And he's not, he's not bowing down to the way I want it. That that's hard, you know, and I have to just say, he has the right to have his opinions and, and I need to respect that. And I just want to throw this out there for, it only took me 24 years to figure this out. So if, if you know, anybody wants a tidbit on this uh, marriage thing, women more than anything, they want to feel loved. They want yes. to feel loved and, and taken care of. Uh, men, they want to feel respected. And what does that look like? Respect means that as a woman, you're not always questioning every decision that they make or, or just reminding them about stuff that they need to take care of, respect them. And as a woman, that's totally sometimes agree. hard. <laughs> as a woman, it's hard for me because sometimes I want to say, are you sure you really want to do it that way? Because I can think of a lot better ways of doing that. Just be quiet. Yes, we don't want a running commentary on everything we do or decide or think or. Yes, exactly. You know what? And, and if you want a happy marriage, uh, a lot of times women, you just need to zip it. And it's hard for women. <laughs> we, have a, we have a lot of opinions. But if you want to have a happy marriage, uh, love the woman, respect the man. And, and just remember that respect is oftentimes not giving him directions uh, in the car or making comments about his driving or questioning the way he might do things. Just let it go. It's not the most important thing. Yeah, it's not even in the top 10. <laughs> um, well, that's, a, that's a, a great segue into the next uh, thing I wanted to ask you. And that is, are there things you learned about how you show up in relationships that were helpful post-divorce? I mean, we, I understand your husband abandoned you and that wasn't what you wanted, but did you, did you glean any, you know, looking back on it in retrospect? Sure. And then I will also add to that, are there things you've learned by being married to someone who also has a very fiery personality um, that you think, well, we were probably brought together to teach each other this thing or that thing. Absolutely. So I'll open um, that all up to you. Okay. So as I mentioned before, I was married before. My husband was also married before. Uh, he was married to an inactive LDS woman who through her, he was introduced to the church and eventually joined the church after they decided not to continue on with being married. Uh, so I look at that and I think, we both needed to go through a situation where our spouses left us because of our very fiery personalities and, and learn to appreciate each other more. I don't know if we would have made it coming through together in a first marriage. Um, we might've just been so ready to be done with it. Um, so I will say that. And looking back, I had to do a lot of healing 
through that first marriage. I had to re take responsibility for what I did in the marriage that, that sort of killed the marriage. Right. Of course, we never like to look at ourselves because, you know, oh, I did nothing, right? But in retrospect, I think uh, I wore the masculine in the, in the relationship. I was the, the breadwinner. I was the one who, um, you know, kind of dictated how things were going to go in the relationship. And I cannot fault him for thinking, this is not the way I want my life to go. Now, did he ever talk to me about that? No, <laughs> but, and maybe I wouldn't have been receptive. And so I had to look at that and say, where did I sort of mess up in this relationship? And then going into another relationship, I had to say, okay, there are certain things that I like done a certain way, but my husband might not like that. And I have to allow him his autonomy to do things that I might not agree with or want done a certain way, but that's the way he wants them done. And I need to, here we go, ladies, respect him, <laughs> you know, as, as hard as it is not to have things done a certain way. And whether that's child rearing or um, certain activities, I just have to respect that. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting insight. And I, I, um, I like that even though, you know, you weren't the one who abandoned the marriage, you could still look back and think about, you know, how did I show up in that marriage? How might I have not been the wife that, that he needed or wanted, you know, and, and not in the sense of beating yourself up, of course, but just in the sense of this person's a mirror for me in some way. And, and learning how to do it better. Uh, and, you know, Kathy and I have often joked, we, we kind of looked at people who got divorced when we were in our first marriages and thought, you know, why can't they make it work? And then we both ended up divorced and, oh. <laughs> and then you knew why you couldn't make it work, right? Right. right. And, and I think... Kathy and I both have kind of fiery personalities too, in, in a way, we're both very strong uh, personalities. And in a lot of ways, I, I wanted that I want because it takes that kind of person to deal with me, I think. Um, but I, you know, my first wife was such a pleaser. And um, I realized that even without knowing it, I, I probably took advantage of that more than I should have. And you know, as I look back at it in retrospect. And so I think, you know, we, there's always things we can learn about what we've done in the past. And did that work? Was that, is that the way I want to show up in the world? You know? Right. And uh, you know, I look at it this way, that every person that comes into our lives is trying to help us get back to God. Right. And maybe the way they do that is, because we have to say, oh, I don't want to be like that way that person is showing up. So I want to be different. Or maybe we can learn from them and say, wow, I really like these attributes that this person has. I want to aspire to be more like them. And if we can just say, this person came into my life for a reason. What can I learn from it that's going to help me make it back to God? Right. Um, I'd like to ask you too, you recently wrote and published a book and uh, you know, you've, you've had some other traumatic things in your life. I mean, a lot of times I think we would like to think, okay, I've gotten divorced. I've been through my Gethsemane, you know, um, right. there's not going to be any more now. It's all smooth sailing. And that isn't always the case. <laughs> that is not the case at all. Um, so Two and a half years ago this month, uh, my son, my 19-year-old son, my son with my husband, uh, took his life. And this was from out of the blue. We, we did not see this coming. He was a, a freshman at the University of Utah. He was in mechanical engineering, which he loved. In all aspects, he seemed to have a beautiful future, right? It, he was not one of these people where you're like, oh, that kid's in, you know, got trouble written all over him, or he doesn't have a future. It, it was devastating for our family. And my father had actually died by suicide five years before my son. And when that happened, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't say the word suicide. 
um, my, my best friends didn't know how my father actually died because of the stigma and shame. And so when my son took his life, I went into that space where I can't talk about it. It's is awful. And for a couple of days, I really hovered on almost going into a black hole. Yeah. But I could see that if I did that, when I came out of that depression, my husband might not be here. My, my daughters might not be here because of the grief that we were all experiencing. And I received a couple of calls from friends who were mothers with kids who knew my son. And they told me of, of their concerns for their own children. And I had to make a really hard decision. And that decision was, is that this situation with my son was not about me. Was I a good parent? Was I a bad parent? Right. It was not about my son, what he was going through. It was about the opportunity that I had to change the outcome for these children who could go into what's called copycat suicide, which mm. is very prevalent, especially among youth. They see one person does it and the next and the next. And I thought, if I don't say something about this and they take their lives, I can't live with myself. That, that would not be acceptable for me. I received a priesthood blessing on the day my son died. And uh, it was from a former state presidency member who had known us a, a long time, had known our son since birth. And as he's giving this blessing of comfort to me, he, he sort of stops and he says, Lark, you have a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do. And this is the day my son died. And I'm thinking, what is he talking about work? How can he talk about work? My son just died. And I'm thinking like business work, right? Yeah. And a couple of days later, after the call with my friends, and I'm, I'm trying to think, what is this work? And it came very clear from Heavenly Father, suicide prevention you have a new soapbox you need to stand up and you need to tell people that satan is telling lies satan is telling you that you're not worth it that you don't belong and that you need to end your life and that is a lie and so suddenly in less than a week from my son's death i started posting on social media i started learning more about it i started getting it out there and if you had told me before then that i would be an advocate for suicide prevention, I would have said, there is no chance. I would never do that. That is, you know, so beyond anything that I feel comfortable with. And yet I feel this divine calling to talk about it because something that I didn't know as a parent, and I thought I was a really good parent. You know, we talked to our kids about drugs and, and not uh, drinking and, and, you know, premarital sex. I mean, we had all these conversations. The one conversation I didn't have was about mental health. And in Utah, the number one killer of youth is suicide. And it's actually the 10th number. Yeah, the 10th killer nationwide for youth. And I thought, I thought I was this great parent. How did I not know about the number one killer? What was going on in my head? Was I so busy with my career or just, you know, trying to keep the family together and, and making schedules work that I, I didn't know about this? And that's part of the reason I wrote the book is that I did not want one other parent to go through what my husband and I went through, just everything. If you think a divorce, you know, demoralizes you, I can promise you there are other things that can make you feel I'm worse. Sure. One of which is the suicide of a family member, specifically a child, because you are left with so many unanswered questions. And that was one of the reasons I wrote the book. The other reason was, was, People are grieving, whether or not it's a death or a suicide, we, we are grieving about different things. And how can you find the hope and the reason to get up in the morning and move throughout your day when you feel like everything has just been taken from your life, that you, you don't even know how you're going to make it forward? And, and that has been very interesting. Um, so my son and I fought like every day of his life. He, he and I were just at each other's throats for different reasons. And I look back and I think um, my son was actually here to help me become more Christ-like so that I could try to relate to him better. After he died and I started writing the story, I felt him close to me every day, this spiritual connection. And I felt like we healed our relationship from the way it was before his death. There was a before the death and then the, the relationship after the death. And we got very close. After I published the book last November in 2020, I actually went through a huge grief, uh, an additional loss 
because I felt like I had lost him spiritually. First, I'd lost him physically. And then spiritually, because the book was done, I wasn't with him spiritually every day like I had been. And he kind of said to me, mom, you need to grieve. You need to like feel the full force of grief and you need to do this on your own. I, I need to go do my other mission. And his other mission is to help people who, who are depressed and, and having suicidal thoughts. And he's trying to help them not choose that. And, and so the last several months have been very difficult. And finally, I feel like, okay, I'm ready to get back out there and talk about it. I sort of had to take a few months and just um, for myself to feel strong enough to be able to talk about this again. And so now I'm out actively speaking again, suicide prevention and uh, doing different organizations where I talk about this because it is so important. I call it the global pandemic, suicide. In my opinion, it's worse. And especially after COVID, when we've isolated, I think it's suicide is even worse than it was the year my son died. You know, I, I, one thing that has sort of occurred to me while you were describing that, and, and that's, that's a lot, um, but we grieve all kinds of different losses. And of course you had to grieve the loss of your first marriage. And later you had to grieve, um, you know, the suicide of your son. And, and what have you learned about grief that can help others who either have gone through divorce or the death of a spouse or the death of a child or anything like that, that, you think would, would help them to move forward? Uh... So everybody has different stages of grief and we, and we progress uh, along that grief in different ways. And I was kind of processed through my grief fairly quickly because I felt like I had a mission. And also my father had died by suicide five years before. So I had experienced a lot of grief around suicide. I feel that that, that helped me process and move forward faster. My husband and one of my daughters have not read my book. They can barely talk about my son. Uh, my, my husband just get tear, you know, tears up. We just did my son's temple work on Friday, so just a couple of days ago. My husband just broke down in the slush room and just sobbing because he his heart is so broken. Yeah. And what I had to learn early on is that I cannot force any of my family members. Oh, just get over it. Just do what I'm doing. You know, just talk about it. I can't force them to move forward and to do something they're not comfortable with. Just like they can't force me to stop talking about it. Would they love for me to stop talking about suicide prevention? Yes. You know, but I can't. And because I feel like I've been able to talk about it, not only have I been able to heal from my son's suicide, but also from my father's suicide. So I would say respecting other people in their grief is huge. Now, here's one of the ways that I was able to get through the grief faster with my son. It was a hard way, but it, it worked, but it was hard. So you can do things two ways. You can have hard now, easy later, or easy now and hard later. And mm. the first, I want to say month after my son died, let's say after a divorce or, you know, your spouse tells you, I don't want to be married anymore. We like to live in fantasy land. Right. Where it didn't really happen, right? And so for that <laughs> first, yes, big time denial. That first month after my son died, my mind, everybody's minds does this. Well, what if he really didn't die? What if he's going to walk in the door right, right now? What if he's coming? What, you know, what if, what if, what if he made another choice? And I had to be really hard with myself. And I, I would not let myself play those games. And I would say, no. You live in this reality. That is crazy talk. He has made his choice. He is not here any longer. He is no longer with you. He is dead. And I had to be like this, this war game, this mind game. I was very, very fierce with myself, very upfront and in my face. Because I knew that if I allowed myself to have these fantasies and to continue to go down that route of, oh, he's going to come in and it's going to be beautiful and we're going to, you know, just pick up and, and it'll be a lovely relationship and I'll change and be nice to him, et cetera. That would not have served me. Right. And so I did the hard thing right up front and I made myself mad, you know, why can't I just be happy and think, think thoughts that like pretend that he's here, 
that would not have served me. So I had to be hard with myself. I think we call that radical acceptance. Um, it, it's not necessarily saying that we are happy about it or we enjoy the decision somebody else made or the circumstance we find ourselves in. It's just saying that we accept that, okay, this is my situation and I have to move on from here without second guessing it, without fighting it, without you know, wishing it away. Right. It's reality. And as I look back on my life, you know, when I went through that first divorce, uh, yeah, I probably would have found happiness or peace a lot sooner if I had ex done the radical accept uh, acceptance, which I didn't have a clue of back 25 years ago. Right. And so to look back then when I went through my two years of hell, what I call it, versus, you know, going through the time with my, my son, you know, we can, we can either learn the lesson quicker or it can take a long time. Uh, when my son died, I joined a few Facebook groups of other grieving parents. And what I saw was that these parents, um, they could not get over the death of their child. They refused to accept it. One said, my daughter died three years ago and her backpack is still on the stairs where she last left it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, woman, you know, I did not want to be that parent or that right. person. Um, I Make just your was, home a shrine to someone who's not yes, there. Yes, exactly. And every day, you know, yes, I think about my son every day, but sure. I want to do it in ways that that show respect for his memory and that hopefully have have honored him by sharing his story so that other people will make a different choice. I believe that that's what he wants me to do. Um, I recently moved and I was giving a new ministering assignment to a woman. I went out to meet her and she, she told us she was a widow. She's probably 50 years old and she's a widow. And, and we're like, oh, well, how long have you been a widow? And she said, 20 years. And I, I thought that was interesting because I would hope that I would not identify that way 20 years after an event in that sense. And maybe she could have just said, I'm single, right? right? But by her continuing 20 years later to identify as a widow, what she was telling herself in the world is that this is who I am. This is all I'll be. This is my future, my past, my present, my everything. And I just thought, please, people, don't put labels on yourself that confine you. Right. You don't need to walk around and say, I'm divorced. You know, that's who I am. I'm divorced. Just stop it. You know, you're, you're a whole person, just who you are. Yeah. You know, one, one shift that I made, and maybe you can speak to this also, is I think when I was going through all of the grief in the beginning, I, I think our brain, our brain is wired for survival more than for happiness. And we want to be right. And, you know, I don't condone anything my former wife did or, or that I did in, in saying this, but it's accepting what happened and what, what is. And I think for me, when, you know, first I was telling my divorce story to anybody and everybody who would listen. And thankfully I had enough presence of mind at the time to know that I would wear any one person out and I needed to have a wide circle of friends. Uh, and, and honestly, that was helpful. But I think, I, I think it was helpful to work through the trauma. But I think there has to come a point somewhere in there. And I didn't get there soon enough, I, at least as soon as I would if, if something were to happen now. I think you have to reach a point where you do have that radical acceptance and you say, okay, this is what happened. It doesn't have to be somebody's fault. We don't have to, you know, have a court trial over it every time we talk to someone or every time, heaven forbid, we're on a date <laughs> because, I, you know, you get two divorcees together and they can go on and on about what happened um, to them in their former marriage. And, and I'm not saying that a lot of it isn't valid. I'm just saying that it probably doesn't serve us to dwell on how we were wronged or what the other person's faults were. Um, 
you know, and I think when I could start to look at it from a perspective of, all right, how did I show up? How would I like to show up differently? How can I deal with the things that I can control as opposed to always focusing on what was done to me from the outside? I think that was a huge shift and, and where I started to feel a lot more peace. Right. And maybe, maybe you could speak to that also. Well, I just find it interesting how people define themselves. And as, as you're going out and talking to your friends, you know, yes, it's shocking for you, but if you carry on with that story, that whole victimhood story, it's like, right. you know, it's, it's a yawner. You know, nobody wants to hear about you and the victim. And as a victim, you really can't move forward. Um, right. I was more interested in hearing from my, my now husband when we were dating. What do you feel that you did that contributed to the dissolution of your marriage? And he flat out said, I know I work too much. I just, I worked, you know, that was so much so important to me that I just worked and worked and worked, you know, and we didn't often see each other. And so he, he was willing to acknowledge his part in, in why their marriage might have, have come apart. That's what I want to see. I don't want to go out and date somebody who's like, oh, it was all her fault. She did everything wrong. I was perfect, right? Right. Because that's not the case, really. It takes two. Right. So I would say really have an in-depth look at yourself and say, where did you contribute to whatever situation, divorce or uh, problems with a child where you're, you know, your child doesn't want to talk to you anymore? Well, why? What did you do? Right. And right. how can you maybe change that? So that's what I would say is get out of the victim. It's you cannot move forward if you're the victim. Nobody wants right. to be with the victim. Do you know, uh, know or know of Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife? I don't. Okay. Well, she's a very prominent Latter-day Saint sex therapist. And we had her uh, on this podcast uh, several episodes ago. Um one of the things that she pieces of wisdom that she gave that I thought was particularly poignant was what you're looking for the second time around is somebody who has some self-understanding and is able to do self-reflection um, because that person can change. That person can be intentional yeah. basically about what what's going to happen in the future and how they're going to show up and she says of course to to find that kind of person you've got to be striving to be that kind of person as well and and that's why Kathy and I named uh, you know titled our book intentional courtship because we believe being intentional in courtship leads to being intentional in marriage and there there can be all kinds of examples of where that intentionality matters but it's essentially deciding how you want your relationship to look and coming up with agreements uh, that will get you there and then sticking to those agreements very scrupulously so absolutely and i and i will say this for for those who um are listeners who maybe want to be married or remarried and and they're looking around one one very vital thing is that having gone through a divorce the first time, you have that stigma and that label already on you. Uh, second marriage is hard and, and harder than your first marriage. If you thought your first marriage was hard, just <laughs> welcome to the roller coaster because second marriages, they are really hard. And the reason is, is that I, I caught myself many times. Oh, I've been divorced before. I already have that I stigma. Can yes. I can do it again, just like that, right? And so- I had to be, like you said, very intentional about what am I trying to create? Why is being married important to me? And I would say, I would rather have you be married to the right one than, than, and than not married at all, right? I would rather see you not married at all than to be married to the wrong person, honestly. Right. Because you don't want to go through where your self-esteem is being questioned all the time and it's just life is a struggle. Um, you know, you can cry before you're married, but you're going to cry after and you just make sure that you're making good choices. And so um, you just have to remember that that once you decide to get married that second time, you're all in and you have to be ready for things that come up where you're like, well, my first spouse didn't do that. You know, <laughs> you're not married to them anymore. The other thing I would just want to put in there about um, 
parenting other your spouse's children. Obviously, my daughter was very young, but from the very beginning, we understood that we would parent our daughter, my daughter, together. And there was never, you know, she's mine or, you know, these are yours or anything like that. Uh, it was everything was ours. And um, I allowed him to parent 100%, just like I was parenting 100%. And you need to make those kinds of decisions early on as to how the parenting will happen. You know, she was young. Maybe you've got older teenagers. What does that look like? You have to have house rules and then both parents have to agree to those because I've seen a lot of marriages struggle and even dissolve because one or the other parent would undermine what the other parent said about parenting in this second marriage. Yeah, I think that's that's a very uh, insightful comment. And in second marriages, well, we we built a culture with our first spouse, uh, a family culture, and the second marriage is not going to have that same culture. And we're going to have a little bit of culture shock, kind of like going on a mission to a foreign country. And we're older and more set in our ways usually at a in a second marriage, and you know that's something we've got to expect and be prepared for. Um, so I, I think that's a, a, a very wise observation. How can our listeners find your book? What's the title and how can they look for it? So you can find it on Amazon. The title is Learning to Breathe Again, Choosing to Heal After Losing a Loved One to Suicide. Um, you can find it under Lark Dean Galley if you look on Amazon. Um, Cover is me with uh, it's it's a, a woman sitting in a chair, uh, out in the in the water with an empty chair next to her. Um, Richard Paul Evans was kind enough to write the foreword for me. A very very good friend. His mother attempted suicide when he was uh, a young boy, oh, and wow. um, it just it's a book that will help if parents if you are struggling in your relationships with your children, get this book because I talk about what I wish I had known before my son died. I parent so differently now with my other children. And um, I, it, it's a lot of um, spiritualness. I don't, you know, come out and say I'm LDS, although it's very clear, you know, when I start talking about my parents going to BYU, <laughs> right. but, uh, but, it, but I just realized I can't leave out the spiritual side and God, because I would not be in the place I am without that relationship with God. And I talk about some very spiritual things where um, my son, bef before he passed away, um, how I had this vision of him in the spirit world. And he was telling me, because I used to always think the relationship problems were with him. And God clearly mm. told me, it's like, no, you're the problem, not him. <laughs> and this, <laughs> this vision opened up to me and said, uh, my son was telling me, mom, you're going to have a hard time being Christ-like, but I'm going to help you. And if my son, if his mission was to come to this earth and solely to help me to become more Christ-like, he has fulfilled his mission because I am completely different from before his death. You know, I had a dad who was pretty, he grew up on a, on a ranch. Um, you know, he, he had pretty firm ideas about how things ought to be and um, did not tolerate laziness did you know um you know the type of person and uh i probably um in the first 26 or 27 years of my life saw him with tears in his eyes twice um he lost a son my little youngest brother when he was only 17 years old and I've noticed that my dad's emotions are closer to the surface since then. I mean, I, and I don't know what all of his thought process was, but I think it, it can be um, in a way have a softening impact that maybe takes some of the judgment out of us and some of the, the way that we're hard on people and we don't even necessarily realize it. And, you know, my brother didn't choose out of this life, uh, in fact, he was probably the kid my dad was the closest to. So I don't think my dad would look at that and say, oh, it was somehow my fault that he got cancer. And, you know, but he still, I think, through processing it, um, changed. 
and uh well, my my husband uh engineer military man uh just like you said i in our marriage i had seen him cry twice and one of those was at his mom's funeral mm. the day my son died my husband cried for three days just heart-rendering sobs and now like i said he's he's fairly emotional about about our son and it it has softened him in ways that would not have happened any other way yeah so i think a lot of times we go through these things and, and we think it wasn't supposed to be this way maybe it was exactly. maybe we each have our own path and god knew what we needed to become the people that he wanted us to become so. I, I absolutely believe that maybe you look at somebody and they're in a marriage with a spouse that is just a jerk or terrible or their kids are awful you know they're inactive they're this or they're that and why can't this person why didn't they make better choices maybe the people in their lives were there because they were meant to be there and and maybe these people are there and they are serving their mission by helping the other person become more christ-like it's not for us to judge. We're just right. here. We're just here for the ride, trying to get back to our father. Right. So your book is Learning to Breathe Again. Again, where can we find it? So on Amazon. And I, I have it on my Kindle, actually. So I'm asking that for the audience. But uh, I, and I commend it even to mid singles who haven't lost a child or anything like that. But if you if you lost a spouse or a child, uh, whether it's to divorce or death or some other other method, uh, I still uh, think that we all have to learn to breathe again after a tragedy, and uh, and you know we can can find that hope again, and and uh, you know even after a loss that we think is unfathomable. So I appreciate you coming on our program and sharing your insight, and uh, remember, folks, anytime is the right time for more love in your life. Uh, thanks for listening to LilyPod, and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to LilyPod to get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, share with those you love. For more information about our organization and services, visit loveinlateryears.com.